This is episode 33 with ultramarathoner, philanthropist, and the man who just ran seven ultras on seven continents, Mr. Joel Runyon. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Jason Fitzgerald, and it is usually my job to help you become a better runner, faster, stronger, impervious to injury, and a lover of split-leg short shorts. But sometimes, it's helpful to be inspired. It's helpful to get re-motivated. And it's helpful to meet runners who are doing big things and changing the world at the same time. That's what we're doing today. First, let's thank our sponsor, Health IQ, an insurance company that helps health-conscious people, like us runners, get special life insurance rates. Head on over to healthiq.com slash strengthrunning to see how your running can help you save on insurance. All right, on the podcast is a longtime friend of strength running, Joel Runyon. Joel started running about eight years ago as a triathlete and has since evolved into an accomplished ultramarathoner. He's just completed races on all seven continents to raise money for the charity Pencils of Promise. So far, he's raised over $190,000, met his goal of building seven schools in developing countries to help disadvantaged students, and has been featured everywhere from Runner's World to Vice Sports. This project has taken him to Antarctica, Patagonia, Chile, Australia, Thailand, Finland, and even Chicago, Illinois. We're talking about the planning, gear, specific obstacles, and training necessary for this project today. And buckle up, both Joel and I were feeling quite quotable in this episode, and there are lots of gems throughout the show. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Joel Runyon. All right, what's up, everyone? Thanks for being here. Joel Runyon in the house. Welcome, Joel. What's up, man? So I've always found it really inspiring to talk to people who are doing crazy things, and you are just that type of guy, Joel. So thanks for sharing your story and what you've been up to over the last year or so. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, so we are uh, talking about the 777 Project, which you just completed. Can you tell us what in the world is that? So a couple years ago, I decided um, to just kind of start this thing, and I called it 777. It's uh, seven ultramarathons on seven continents, and uh, the goal was to run these races and uh, raise money uh, and awareness for Pencils of Promise and build seven schools with them. And that was, uh, I think, the monetary goal that we had was $175,000. And you are just about uh, we are, there, aren't you? We are there. So uh, we're waiting for the final totals, but uh, we... Uh, I finished the last race in April, and we raised $156,000, and then we did this uh, joint venture partnership with Jesse Itzler, who's an entrepreneur uh, and has a fitness group, and uh, together we raised another, I think, $36,000, so the total that we raised is, um, we're waiting for all the checks to clear and all, uh, you know, the uh, T's be crossed and I's dotted, I said that backwards, but... Uh, um, we're waiting for all those to clear, but uh, once it all does, I think the total is going to be right around $192,000. So uh, we're well over the final goal, and um, I believe 777 is finished. That's incredible. Uh, first, congratulations. You've, you're doing a lot of good in the world, and uh, I think that's just something to be commended. Uh, now, on the, the running side of things, seven ultra marathons on seven continents – that means you ran one in Antarctica. Can you, can you talk about the the distances that you ran and the the races that you did? Yeah, so uh, this might get a long, little long in the tooth, but I'll, I'll try to I'll try to run them down. So race number one was the Patagonia International Marathon, and that was sixty three kilometers. Uh, race number two was the Chicago fifty, and that was a fifty kilometer race. Uh, race number three was in Narrabeen, Australia, and that was a twelve hour race where you ran one and a half kilometers out and then one uh two and a half kilometers out and then two and a half kilometers back and you did that as many times as you could over 12 hours on new year's eve wow that, um, that sounds like a less than desirable way to spend new year's eve there was literally uh there's a we were right next to a lagoon and there is a party boat out on the lagoon just blasting edm music all night and i'm just running back and forth past it i'm just like this that's what normal people are doing and i'm i'm out here yeah, throw me a beer. For 12 hours, yeah, seriously. Um, race number four was in, in Antarctica, and that was 100 kilometers. Um, race number five was in Thailand, and that was uh, uh, just outside Bangkok. That was a 50K race. 
Uh, race number six was in Rovaniemi, fin Finland, and that was 66 kilometers. And then race number seven was in Cape Town, South Africa, and that was uh, a 56K race. That was Comrades. No, so I did Comrades a few years back, but this one was Two Oceans. So there's two major races in uh, South Africa. Uh, those people are nuts. There's like I've never seen bigger ultra marathons than what they do in South Africa. And Comrades, I think, has uh, like sometimes up to 20,000 people that run it. Uh, and uh, Two Oceans, I think, is billed as the most beautiful marathon in the world. And I believe 11,000 people were signed up for that race. So uh, quite a few. Yeah, that's that's amazing. You're clearly a, a little crazy, uh, and, and that's why you're here on the show. Where did you get this idea? Like you said, oh, I just had this idea a couple of years ago. Did this just randomly pop in your head? What what brings a man to to think about this kind of stuff? So uh, a couple things. So a few years back, I got connected with Pencils of Promise, uh, and this was kind of when I was like, I tricked myself into running by doing triathlons, and I'd done maybe a marathon or two. And um, they said, basically, they reached out to me and they challenged me out of nowhere. They did like a cold pitch email. And I never respond to these because they're always terrible. And uh, they reached out to me and they were doing this uh, campaign and uh, said, hey, what if, what if you did an ultra marathon? And at first I was like, no, no, that's way too far. Um, but then, you know, they brought the charity aspect into it. They, they showed me what they were doing with building schools. And I was like, well, I don't really like to turn out challenges. So. Um, I said, why not? And back in 2012, um, I did my first 50 K and raised, uh, we raised like $26,000 and built our first school with them. And then after that, um, I, you know, after every single race, I'm like, no, I'm never doing this again. This is, <laughs> that was enough. Um, but I just started getting, um, immersed in the world of ultra running and, um, there's something about it that just really speaks to me from a, a mix of adventure uh, the self-sufficiency of just like you just need, you know, like a water bottle in your trail shoes and get out there and go. Um, the aspect of adventure and seeing these places in in parts of the world you would never otherwise get to unless you're you're running on one of these mountain trails. Um, and then just the fact of going farther than most people will ever go. Uh, a mix of all those is just really appealing to me. And I just started finding all these races in all these different places. And one of the ones that I found was this um antarctica race and i was like holy crap as soon as i saw that i was like i think i have to do that one right and i started thinking about like ways i could incorporate you know different um maybe doing another fundraiser or doing something along those lines and i just kept looking at all these other races and i was like man there's there's a lot of cool races all over the place and and there's so many of them and um i was trying to think about how i could just do one of them and do you know maybe another small fundraiser but my whole thing is about you know pushing limits and, and doing stuff that you haven't done before. So I uh, I kind of just decided you know what maybe maybe I just do seven of them. And if I did all seven on seven continents and I'll just throw another seven in there and do a, you know a seven uh, seven schools. Like I don't think I can do that, but why why not try? And so um, I, I launched it uh, back in 2014 actually. So a while ago. Um, and then ran into a whole host of issues, um, when you plan something logistically this large and, uh, we can talk about those, but, um, just decided to go for it and, uh, uh, and launched it. Why not just try is like the, the, the mantra of every runner everywhere. I love that. <laughs> um, now why, why did you specifically partner with pencils of promise? I mean, I, I know they, they build schools in developing countries and in places where there's a lot of need for mm -hmm. education. And so it's, it's a charity that I think is, is helping to lift a lot of people out of, uh, some really bad circumstances, but I just am curious in your perspective, why pencils of promise? So one of the things is they, they reached out to me a while back and, um, I'm pretty skeptical of charities. Uh, I've done, I've, I've worked with enough charities to see where, um, some are pretty opaque and like you give money and then you don't know what happens to it. And the thing I really liked about Pencils of Promise is, uh, their transparency. You get to see where all the money goes. All the money goes directly to the builds and their, um, staff costs are actually underwritten by other donors. So, when you're raising mon money and, and, and doing fundraising, 
um, you can tell the people that you're uh, asking to donate exactly where the money's going. And um, they also focus on long-term sustainability projects. So it's not just build a school and leave, but they also train teachers. Um, they work on scholarship programs. Um, they have health and wellness programs to make sure kids aren't getting sick all the time. Um, and the combination of those factors, along with just the fact that um, every time I work, uh, you know, work on a charity or work, um, you know, with people who have uh, like less fortunate circumstances and, and figure out a way to give back. Um, it kind of gives you a reality check on what your excuses in life are. You know, when some people like it's, it's literally impossible for some people to, you know, get a book or learn how to read. And, uh, you're complaining that like, you know, it's kind of rainy and you don't want to run today. Like it, it, it puts your, <laughs> it puts all your excuses in check and it, it doesn't necessarily, you know, make the running easier, but it also reminds you, you know, you're not just doing this to see a cool place. You're not just doing this because it's like a fun race, but like, um, you know, there's also other reasons out there. And, and it's one of those things that like, anytime you have a gut check in the middle of the race, uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, personal reasons why I, I keep going and, and, and I don't want to quit or give up. But then you also have, um, you know, that added perspective and it just brings things down to earth and, and you can be like, yeah, I'm sore. Yeah, I'm tired. Yeah. I'm, you know, I don't want to today, but um, it really, it really forces you to to question how good of an excuse that really is when um, other people uh, have a lot worse circumstances than you. Then they'd love to figure out, you know, are they going to do a, um, you know, their five mile run today? Are they going to cut it short and do three? You know, like it's a, it's a, it's a good situation to be in, and and it reminds you to, you know, keep pushing and and, and try to do more than what uh, you could do previously. Now, have you seen one of the schools that Pencils of Promise have built? Have you been able to go to, uh, and, and maybe you can give us a few examples of where they are and, and you know, what they look like? Because uh, I'm, yeah. I'm curious. Yeah, so in 2012, we built the first school. In 2013, I got to visit Guatemala. And um, it's, it's amazing what you see when you go to these places. Because a lot of these places have, uh, like, tin walls and, like, dirt floors and maybe a chalkboard. But you don't think about really basic things that like people are missing like electricity sometimes electricity does, doesn't work all the time so if you're indoors and you don't have like and your walls are made of tin um you can't see anything in school like and you're writing on a chalkboard like the kids can't see anything or a lot of these places are it's in guatemala they built schools in guatemala laos and uh ghana and a lot of these places have like a rainy season and so when it gets rainy uh and you have a tin roof the noise is deafening. You can't hear anybody. And so some simple things that they've done is, uh, you know, like they put a floor in the classroom. They have, um, instead of having tin roofs, they have, uh, it's made of material that doesn't like drown out the teacher's voice so kids can actually see things. Uh, you build schools with bigger windows so light can come in so kids can actually read things. Um, and when I visited in 2013, that was really eye-opening to me. And that was one of the reasons I was like, I'd like to do more. Um, and that's kind of where seven, seven started to, uh, begin. And then while I was traveling around the world, um, I was able to stop over in Laos, which is one of their other communities and actually get to see the first school that they ever built, um, get to see some of the, um, you know, a lot of times they think it's just, you know, Americans coming over and, and building all these things, but Pencils of Promise actually has a Laos staff, um, in country that runs, you know, makes up 80% of the staff or something like that, maybe more, maybe, maybe closer to 90%. And, um, the, you know, they're running the thing. So they're not only just, you know, providing, um, you know, the community with, uh, tools and education, but they're also, um, they're also enabling leaders from within the community to actually take charge and own the community and own the schools. And, uh, when you get that buy-in from the people, um, it's, it's much more powerful than just going over here's a school, take it and then, you know, leave and you don't ever know what happens. Um, and so it's been really cool to actually see uh, the school schools get built and, uh, I'm hoping to go to Ghana, which is their third location, um, sometime in the fall and check out, um, you know, what they're doing there. But it's just been seem, you know, <laughs> you, you know, we, we, there's a lot of things, you know, wrong with our educational system in America and there's all these different things that you can talk about, but like, you know, we have roofs and you have lighting and you have desks and you have books and, um, you know, all these really basic things that you take for granted. And when you see, you know, like little kids, uh, you know, not even necessarily have like a, a bathroom 
uh, to use like on the school property or like a really, really bad one that you wouldn't want to have anyone go into. Um, you know, some of these basic facilities, uh, you know, it's pretty impactful and uh, it's part of the reason why I wanted to, you know, do more and, and, and take on a project that seems crazy like this. Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, my wife is a is a teacher and she's really passionate about the state of education and, you know, we we're, we always find ourselves talking about uh how to make schooling better because clearly mm-hmm. the kind of industrial system we have right now is basically teaching people to be really good in uh a factory. You know, it's a mm-hmm. it's a 20th century form of education which isn't great in the 21st century that values critical thinking and creativity and all these other things. And, you know, I always feel like I'm dealing with issues around the perfection of the education system. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, I'm, I was interested to hear your take on other parts of the world where, you know, they don't have that luxury. They're not going for, you know, perfection and, and, you know, Reggio Emilia standards of education and all these, all these types of things. They're really hoping for ruse that don't drown out the teacher, enough sunlight in their classrooms that they can see the board and, uh, you know, electricity and, and available bathrooms and things that you need just to get through the day. Uh, so really glad you brought that up. Uh, now, one thing that you did talk about earlier that I want to touch on um, is is the logistics of doing something like this. And I think anyone who's run a, a major road marathon, anyone who's done uh, you know, a really long ultra marathon, say 50 miles or longer, they know how hard it is to plan the logistics of all this. You're fueling what you're going to need. How are you going to get there? Where are you going to stay? And, and, you know, I've struggled with just doing this for a marathon. So you did it for seven different ultra marathons all over the world. Uh, I'm stressed out just thinking about it. <laughs> what does it take to plan for an adventure like this? Can you give us maybe like a case study, for example, of say, one of the more difficult races that you ran and, and the steps that you had to take to be able to even run this thing? So, yeah, so in, in, in a way, it's a little easier than doing a road marathon because they're much smaller races. So you're not like having to deal with like prime hotel location versus like how far I'm going to have to walk on race day versus, you know, like everything's booked out. Um, so let's say, let's say like, like Finland. So I flew into Helsinki and then we had to take like a two hour flight up to Rovaniemi, which is just outside the Arctic Circle. And for that one, I mean, maybe there were 200 people in the race and Helsinki, this is just this little tiny town. And, um, so we ended up just booking a place on Airbnb that was like, you know, it's a tiny little place. Like everything's relatively walkable. Um, and so we just found a place that was kind of like Google mapped, like triangulated, like, okay, where's the, you know, where's the start line, which actually was in the middle of a frozen river. So, uh, we had to figure out like, you know, is, is it closer to the other side of the river, that side of the river, wherever? Um, and um, it was it was n- not as difficult as you think it would be. But then the the bringing the correct gear and making sure the harder part for me was I had a couple of these stacked up, maybe a couple weeks apart, and I'd maybe come back to the states for a couple days in between. But a lot of them I would travel from like a, um, you know, I traveled from like. Uh, Australia to Antarctica, uh, uh, to, to Australia to South America to Antarctica in one go, and then I did, um, you know, Thailand back to the U.S. and then to Finland, where I went from a, a hot weather race to a you know negative sixteen degree, <laughs> um, you know, freezing freezing cold race. So the harder part for me was making sure that I had the the right gear um, in my bag pretty much the whole time, and I br- pretty much brought a secondary bag um, that was all just race gear all the time. Um, and, uh, just kind of schlepped that along. And I usually travel pretty light with just a backpack and uh, a carry on. And so this was like one of the first times in a long time that I've checked bags, uh, and brought it along with me. But, um, you know, from a, from a housing and a, a, you know, getting the locations right, uh, it was a little bit easier than some big races. I think actually Cape Town was probably the hardest one just because it was 11,000 people and it was, you know, it was more of a traditional, um, ultra road race, which is kind of unusual in the ultra world. But for a lot of the stuff, it was more, um, you know, how do I get the right gear in the right part of the world? 
at the right time. And uh, I thought I was going to have to like FedEx some stuff around, but I was able to just route my flights in a way that um, I kind of had a couple spots. I had a, had a spot in LA where my car was um, and a, a spot in New York where if I was flying in or out of the US, I could you know grab something or pick something up. And, uh, and luckily I was able to pull that off without too much, uh, um, logistical insanity. <laughs> too much. It sounds, sounds like it was too much already. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now I'm curious about the gear that you needed. Uh, I know gear is a lot more important when it comes to ultra marathons, just because you're out there for so much longer, you're out there for potentially, you know, 10, 15, 20 hours, uh, and, I don't think you did any hundred mile races, but some of the longer races that you did do, um, you know, they, they might as well take as long as a hundred just because you're running on packed ice in Antarctica and God knows what some of the other terrain look like. So what are some of the indispensable pieces of gear that you, that you used? Uh, and is, is there, is there a way to do it with less gear. I mean, I consider you a minimalist when it comes to stuff. You don't have, yeah. I don't think you own a ton of stuff. You just said, you know, you checked a bag for the first time and, you know, digital nomads around the world just had a heart attack hearing you say that. So, yeah. uh, t tell, tell us about gear. So, um, for me, a lot of the gear that I, I dealt with, uh, uh, I ended up buying a lot of gear specifically for, for the cold weather stuff. And um, I was kind of freaked out. So I was in – my situation was I just did the race in Narrabeen. And it was kind of summer there. Um, it wasn't too hot, but um, kind of wore my normal, um, you know, light race outfit. Um, and didn't have too much um, to really tack on other than just, like, um, swap my trail shoes out for my uh, for my road, road shoes. And so – but then I was in Australia, and I, I needed to get, go to uh, South Africa where, where we'd be flying out for Antarctica. And I didn't have um, – this is one of those situations where I've got cold weather gear, but it's back in Chicago. And so, like like I said, my life is a little bit all over the place right now. But um, So I basically went into Patty Pound, which is a store – it's like REI in Australia. And uh, I was just – walked up to the guy and I was like, here's the deal. I'm going to Antarctica. I'm running an ultra marathon. I don't want to freeze to death. What do I need? Good and I, I felt I felt like um, – like one of the movies where the woman goes into the dressing room and they just bring him, bring her stuff and she tries it on and she comes out like twirling around and dress. Except for me, it's like I'm coming out in like uh, ultra marathon, like cold weather gear. And so um, they ended up hooking me up uh, with a bunch of stuff. And uh, my cold weather gear specifically was way more minimal than I thought it would be. Um, uh, I always thought that I was just going to be freezing cold no matter what. I just never had the right gear. And so what my cold weather outfit ended up looking like was a, you know, like a merino wool base layer on, on the bottom and top. Um, I'd have a wind layer uh, on my legs. I could send you the whole list of uh, all this too if you want. Um, a wind, just kind of a windbreak layer on my, my legs. Um, and I thought that was like very minimal. I was like, I don't know if this is going to be enough. Um, but you want to be able to run still while you're doing all this. So, um, and then on the upper body, I had a, a merino wool layer. Um, like a Patagonia mid layer, their nano fleece, which is, um, when you're trying it on in the store, it feels like the most wimpiest, it, it still feels like a wimpy piece of, uh, like a mid layer. And you're like, this is not gonna, this is not gonna keep me warm. But when you're out there, it's like the, it's the most amazing piece, uh, of gear ever. Um, and then I just had a, like a, a windbreaker, uh, waterproof, uh, Arcteryx, uh, uh, shell. And that was it for the running. Now, when you go to Antarctica, they give you like this polar gear that like if you want to walk around for a long time, um, you can wear it and you don't feel cold at all. But if you're you can't, there's no way you're going to run in it. And so for running, that was basically what I had. Um, I just wore a normal pair of socks, which I thought was um, I was afraid that my hands and my feet were going to freeze because uh, I tend to get really cold in my extremities, um, especially when I'm running. And uh, they were totally fine, which kind of blew my mind. Um, and then I think I had a, um, I had like a baklava, like a like a face mask type thing. And then I had a, uh, a pair of sunglasses, so I didn't get snow blind because that's one of the big concerns when you're out there in the snow. For uh, I think I was out there for like twelve 
plus hours or something like that. And so um, I used that gear both for Antarctica and for Finland, which, believe it or not, was colder than Antarctica um, by like six or seven uh, degrees. So um, that was basically my running outfit. And then um, from a from a uh, from like a gear and from a fuel perspective, uh, Antarctica was laid out in a 10k loop uh, with 5k uh, with a tent out at the 5k mark and basically uh, the home tent at the the 10k uh, 10k and the 0k mark. So every time you came around the loop, you could uh, just have a bag of whatever you needed. And so from a carrying perspective, you could run pretty light because you weren't having to carry any sort of things with you. Um, and I think I did two loop races. And so that was pretty nice. Um, my, my funny story comes along with Antarctica or with, uh, with Finland where basically, uh, my water bladder, uh, that I was going to carry with me, uh, broke, uh, before, <laughs> as I went out, um, like 10 minutes before I went out to the race. And so instead of doing that, I brought along a water bottle. Uh, I was like, I'm going to have to make this do. And there was no water out on the entire race. There's water at one spot. And there were six or seven checkpoints. And so uh, halfway through the race, I ran out of water. I had like eat snow. Then I melted some snow. And then uh, it was so cold that my water bottle froze. And so there was like a whole nightmare of things not to do in Finland with, uh, you know, with your water gear and everything like that. But uh, uh, yeah, for, you know, from a from a physical apparel standpoint, um, they really hooked me up. Shout out to Patty Palin in uh, Sydney, Australia. They're awesome. And um, uh Finally got the right gear, and I'm like, I'm never, like, this has changed my winter running game forever, because I was always going out in, like, I don't know, like, Nike Pro stuff, or, like, the cold gear, and, um, like, I really stepped my game up, and, and it was so worth it, I can't even, I can't even describe, like, how grateful I was to have the stuff that I had, and um, I'm going to be using it for a very, very, very long time. Yeah, I used to coach a runner in Canada, and uh, it's it's always funny, you know. I've coached runners in Canada, coached some runners in Florida, and to hear what they think is cold is uh, worlds <laughs> apart, universes apart. Um, and so, you know, this particular runner, you know, he'd go out running when it was negative thirty degrees, and wow. you know, I was always asking him, "Is this safe? Like, are you sure? You know, we we can do the training that you need to yeah. do in these kind of conditions." And he was always very adamant that. It just depends on your gear. If you have the right gear and you're probably not going to be able to go to, you know, a target and pick up this kind of gear, you need to go to an outdoor specialty store and really buy that, you know, high quality cold weather gear to protect yourself. But it is possible. Um, now, you said you wore normal socks, which I, I, I do find that kind of insane. But did you wear any kind of different shoes for running in Antarctica? Because you were running on, on snow and ice, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, it was packed snow. So to me, the bigger difference is one, I'd rather run in cold um, uh, than hot. I tend to overheat really badly. And so for some of the shorter races, even were tougher for me than some of the colder stuff. Um, but for um, I, I wore the um, Innovate Terraclaw and like it's a nice shoe, but it wasn't anything like it's not built for the Arctic or whatever. I, yeah, I used the same shoe in um, in Thailand as I used in Antarctica and, and Finland. And um, the the snow in Antarctica, they they used a like a a, a big industrial machine to kind of pa like uh, pack down the snow. Um, uh, and in some parts, it was really well packed down. In some parts, like your foot was going through the snow, which is kind of frustrating, especially when you start to get in rhythms uh, later on in the race. And so, um, yeah, just used uh, that normal. I might have worn a double pair of socks maybe i don't i don't even know if i remember but i, I just remember being very surprised because i had um i had my gear bag at the main tent and i was like ready to like swap on i i went out with less than i thought i needed because i was like okay in 10k i'm coming back so i can you know worst case scenario i'll just throw another pair or, you know i've got a pair of wool socks in there somewhere and when walking around and everything like i wore i wore the wool socks i wore you know more intense stuff, but I just wanted to be light for the race. And, um, so I wore less than I thought I needed. And, um, I was great. The hardest part with those races was, uh, my glasses would get, uh, so much heat from my face and then the sweat would come and then it would freeze. And so I'd have to like wipe the, the, the ice off of my, my glasses while I'm running, uh, because he kept fogging it up. And then, um, you know, the con 
condensation or the sweat or whatever would freeze and then I'd have to get rid of that. So like the problems that I had, because that was my number one fear was my, my hands and my feet getting cold. And there were some points where like, you know, you take, you take off your gloves to, to, to refuel or to like adjust your glasses or something like that. And they'd get real cold then and you'd have to be careful about it. Um, but uh, you know, we talked to the guys in Antarctica and they, they, they said, you know, the biggest people that people, biggest problem that people usually have is, um, they'll get, uh, their nose will get frost, uh, frostbitten, um, or like something will happen, um, like usually on their cheeks or on their face because you, that was a piece that was typically, uh, less covered than everything else. And so, um, I, I had a couple pairs of gloves. I, I went through those pairs of gloves cause as you're sweating, um, it gets cold. And then the the sweat um, freezing on you is really what um, really what makes you cold rather than um, the outside cold. So I think at one point during the Antarctica race, I swapped uh, my mid layer out because I just soaked through it, um, and you could feel yourself getting colder. But the real problem with a couple of those races was like you really needed to use the ventilation on the uh, outer shell because. Um, you'd overheat too much or you'd sweat too much. And then the sweat is what really gets you, um, as, as cold because you're pretty well, if you're wearing the right gear, you're pretty well insulated, um, from, from the exterior cold, at least. Now you said that your nose and your cheeks were more exposed than the rest of your face. Did you wear like a balaclava? Did you wear like big goggles that you might see on a skier? How did you protect your face? Yeah. So, so I thought about bringing the like I had goggles with me. Um, I didn't really want to wear them just because they were heavy, and so I got like a, a pair of sunglasses that were just um, they were with the right lens for the snow, so they're like slightly pink tinted, so um, uh, you don't get snow blindness, and you you can you can actually see distances, which is one of the issues that uh, you ran into in Antarctica. Like you don't always know, like hey, that looks like it's a mile away. Oh wait, that's like three miles away and and you, you you really can't tell because everything's just white um so distance and depth perception is really tough um so i think i had a balaclava but i don't know if i used it as much as i just uh kept um they said anytime you know you know every 5k or something just like make sure you're touching your face and if you can feel your nose you can feel your cheeks um you know you're you're fine it's when you can't feel anything that's like that's when you're like oh no i need to put something on so i think i had one in the wings but i I don't know if I wore it out just because um, I, I didn't I didn't want to overdo it, and so I just had my my jacket pulled up pretty close uh, to my face. I had uh, a hat on, um, maybe a skull cap, and then the sunglasses. So I, I think I had my cheeks and my nose exposed, and then I had a um, like a merino wool buff that I would pull up to my nose if it was getting cold, and um, I, I kept a kind of mad. It's basically like a DIY balaclava more than a uh, one that fit on my face. So um, I just kept that because it was I could I could pull it up if I need to. I could pull it down. It wasn't super restrictive, and it was. Um, but the problem is that is with the with the buff, the buff would freeze after a little bit if you got like sweat on it or whatever. And then like you have a whole section of your buff that's just like frozen solid, and you're like, all right, I'm gonna rotate this, or uh, I'm gonna go get a second one <laughs> and uh, and use that. So um, that was kind of my my face setup. Now, how cold was it? We haven't actually put a put a number on the temperature. Uh, so and you said Finland was colder. Finland was cold, much colder. Um, Antarctica was negative ten Celsius. I want to say so. It was actually warmer than I thought. Um, it wasn't. Um, you know, it was summer there. It was it was summer, and we were running through the night, so the sun never set at all, uh, which was bizarre. Um, and then Finland was closer to negative sixteen. Um, and that was just, I mean, that was brutal because like my, like when you're out that distance and it was a completely unsupported race, um, like I finally, I ran out of water, I ate snow, I melted snow, poured in my water bottle and then the water froze because it was so cold. So, um, but both of them, I felt, I feel way better when I'm running in the cold than, uh, in the heat. And, um, I would rather be cold almost all day long than, um, deal with the heat. So, um, it was cold. It wasn't um, insane, but it was definitely um, for the distances uh, that it was. And, and in some cases, the Finland one was tougher because you weren't coming back to a home base every single time. 
and you didn't have gear that you could just swap out on a regular basis. You're basically running off for, you know, 30 kilometers and then making your way back over the next 30 kilometers. So, um, I feel like that was actually a tougher race than Antarctica, which, uh, it's kind of hard to believe, but I, I, I stand by that. Yeah. And that's now not even that cold. So negative 10 degrees Celsius is 14 degrees Fahrenheit, which, you know, I've run outside of Boston, uh, in a Boston winter for, you know, the first 10 years of my running career, pretty much. It it might've been, it might've been Fahrenheit. I could be wrong on that. Okay. Even so, you know, negative 10 degrees. uh, I've had Canadians say not impressed. That's what I've had them say. I'm like, they're like, yeah, that's normal. You know, like, it's cold enough where you still have to take a lot of precautions. You certainly need to, you know, you can't go out there in like a long sleeve shirt and be like, ah, it's cold, but it's not, yeah. you know, it's not, I was going to say Antarctica cold, but that doesn't really work in this situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's incredible. Uh, I think this really just goes to show that it's not always more difficult to run a race in a crazy location. Um, because, Sometimes they make it a lot easier for you with rolling the snow down, make it compact, having those aid stations available to you every five kilometers. Um, And yeah, I mean, that's great. I think if anyone is contemplating doing some crazy race somewhere, uh, you know, probably more more likely than not, they're going to make it manageable. They're going to make it doable for you. So I I just always encourage people to tackle big outlandish goals. Um, Now, Let's talk about the training for all this, because a lot of these were in in somewhat rapid fire order. You know, you would do, you know, a couple weeks apart, maybe only a month or two apart. And when it comes to ultra marathons, that's pretty close together. You know, a lot of runners may only do one or two ultra marathons a year. Um, You know, some of the elite guys, they will do a handful. They might do three, four or five a year, Um, you know, just because these people are genetically gifted and and they can do them at a high level and then recover from them so quickly. So what was your training strategy for something like this? You know, how did you prepare for running not just the distances, but so many of them? So first of all, before we get into that, have you talked to Mike Wardian before? I haven't. I would love to get him on the podcast, but he is another guy who does, he races probably once a week. And and they're yeah, hard races too. Yeah, he he's insane. He's doing some something ridiculous. But I saw him in Antarctica. He was doing a marathon. What we do? They were doing a bunch of marathons in a row, and we were we were doing the ultras. But um, when uh, I was like, yeah, I feel like I, that was probably excessive, even for me. And then like I'm talking to Mike, and he's like, yeah, I've got like this plan, and then like the next whatever, he's got something planned for like every single week on the year. And you're like, okay, all right, maybe I can do more, but like also don't hurt yourself. So um, to get into that. Um, so at first, uh, I don't know if we want to ju- jump into like the first race and the injury and everything like that. But, um, when I first started off, uh, I launched the project like a couple years back and, um, I basically, uh, started and I, I had a coach, uh, and basically was just getting all the mileage in and I'd done, um, comrades as like a training run for, um, the Patagonia race. And I did like a mountain race in Switzerland. And I, I was at the point where, you know, uh, 20 mile runs on the weekend were pretty a regular occurrence. Um, and like I was running, you know, marathon distances on a, on a regular basis, not always at, you know, you know, PR speed, but like, um, you know, just time on feed and, and being out there. And, um, you know, after I got hurt, um, I, I was down in Patagonia, ran 26 miles of this first race, um, got, came around a corner, basically, uh, blown by like, a uh, a tailwind that shifted directions and pushed me entirely across the road on this gravel road and uh, really messed up my ankle. And I thought I just, you know, tweaked it or whatever and, you know, hobbled, run, ran the last 13 miles because I wasn't going to give up because I'm dumb sometimes. And uh, finished the, that race and realized I had pretty much busted my peroneal tendon and had to do a bunch of rehab on it. And so I basically had this really <laughs> big learning lesson from you know, early on, like, all right, okay, so uh, you're gonna have to, you know, temper your expectations and, and train back up. And so I went from running, you know, uh, you know, 20, 26 mile segments at one point as a tr- nice training run to not being able to run like a quarter of a mile. And then when I, I launched uh, the project, relaunched the project back in, you know, October last year, um, 
I was I was kind of concerned. I had kind of worked my way back up to, um, you know, uh, the 12, 13, um, 14, 15 mile range and felt good, but was kind of scared about what my ankle would do um, on anything past that. And um, so I, I got to the point where I was running like marathon distances and decided I was just going to do the um, Chicago 50 uh, as a, a test to see kind of like where my legs were at, but also like it was almost like a gut check for me to see like where like I, I had a bunch of things happen with injury and a bunch of things happen with my business. Um, and I lost a lot of confidence and I, I basically needed to do the race to see if I like I have done this before. Can I do it again? Like where, where am I at? And, um, finished that race and realized, okay, you know, I can do that distance. I've, it wasn't awesome, but like I, I, I've got it in me somewhere so I can, I can pull it out again. And so, um, at that point, I just started, you know, training up to the point, uh, kind of going off my previous training schedules and getting up to the point where I was running, um, you know, having those long runs of 20 miles in on a weekend. And then the, um, the Narrabeen race came up and the way I had this scheduled was, um, basically four races in six weeks. And, uh, I don't necessarily recommend other people do that or, or, or tell people Coach to do this. does the not training. recommend that either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need some disclaimers in there. But um, basically, um, uh, had the 12-hour race. And I was, I, I, my, in my mind, I was like, I'm just going to use each of these races to train as my long run. You know, get a big long run in a couple weeks before my next big race. And so um, I had this 12-hour race and I just said, you know, I'm going to go out and do it and, and, and see, see where I'm at. Um, and felt not awesome afterwards, but feel okay. And then I kind of had the, the, the races planned out every two to three weeks where, um, I, I do the race, uh, I recover, uh, I'd get some more miles on, um, not long runs, but like longish runs, um, in between just to make sure that like nothing was hurting, nothing was, you know, feeling out of place. And, you know, at that point, like, um, you know, if I wasn't able to run, you know, 12 to 18 miles, like kind of comfortably, uh, I, I probably shouldn't be doing what I was doing. And so, um, a lot of just like testing and listening to my body, uh, during those weeks in between. And then, um, you know, trying to get some, uh, long runs in on the weekend. And then, um, a lot of it was just listening to my body because I was traveling a lot. Um, I was trying to recover. Um, I never had, uh, any injuries after that again. So I wanted to, you know, just constantly checking in, doing a lot of just like, um, you know, informal testing to see like, Hey, you know, how's your ankle feeling? Um, I had some hip flexors things, uh, some hip flexor issues pop up here and there, but, um, was just kind of constantly checking in, doing a lot of foam rolling to, uh, make sure I was just taking care of my body and not, uh, pushing myself too far. And then, um, you know, kind of once, once I got to the distance where I was comfortable, like, okay, you know, I feel good at like, um, uh, the 30 to 40, mile range like i just kind of um because they were so quick uh in succession i just kind of did a lot of listening a lot of um um you know medium to, to longish distance runs and then used the the races as sort of like my mid uh, my, my big long run before the next big thing so like i said i don't know if that's necessarily coach recommended but uh um it was it was a way for me to one get the uh, uh kind of attack the 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 races in uh, a reasonable way it also helped me um i really the rationalization with myself was i i don't know if i want to be in ultra shape for the like for the next 12 months after i like trained up to it so I, if i'm at this like 40 to 50 uh like 30 35 to 45 mile range and i feel pretty good about it like i can push myself um on a couple of these longer races and 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 see what i've got on the tank and um um I I got away with it. I don't know. Like I said, I don't know if that's like the best way to do it. But uh, it's actually I, it's, it's not. But um, uh, it was it was something that um, I'm really big on listening to your body and 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 knowing when something's off. And um, I I felt like I had trained myself to the point, uh, you know, by New Year's where I felt pretty good. And the the biggest concern I had was just the. Um, the rapid pace at which I had them lined up and I, I didn't know, um, if I could do it and, until I could do it. And I was, I was 
if I felt bad uh, by the third race, I was planning on rescheduling the Asia leg, and uh, I felt good enough that I just decided to go for it. And um, like I said, I, I I got away with it. <laughs> I don't know. You did it. Yeah, yeah, you did it. Um, yeah, it's certainly uh, a schedule that is not ideal. So in that regard, I would say it's <laughs> it's not coach approved. But at the same time, look, you accomplished your goal. You raised an inordinate amount of money for charity. So I think that's uh, that that's incredible. Uh, you absolutely. I think anyone who's doing this type of goal must listen to their body. It's a prerequisite. You know, I think it's a George Sheehan quote that goes something like. Um, you know, you only get one body. Don't be a blind and deaf tenant. So you really have to listen to the signals that your body is giving you if you want your body to be able to do what you'd like it to do. Now, one thing I'll say is one of the reasons why I think you were able to get away with this kind of rapid succession of ultra marathons and, and recover from them and be able to finish all of them, uh, is twofold. Number one, you had a really good base of fitness that you had built previously. You know, you were saying I could just go out and run 20 miles on the weekend. Not really a big issue. Uh, that is a huge leg up on someone who doesn't have that prior experience. So that was certainly helping you. Uh, and then the other thing is that you weren't racing these as a competitive runner. You weren't trying yep. to see how fast you could potentially finish any of these races. You were really just trying to finish them. And so that difference really sets you up to not put undue pressure on yourself, not try to really go to the well or see God in any of these races and, and you know, really push yourself to, to that whole extra level. And that ensures that you're not... Um, putting in too high of an effort that you're not ready for. You know, you're not writing checks that your body can't cash. Yep. I got a lot of and quotables then, right now. That's yeah, no, you're, I'm, 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 I'm writing these down over here. Um, no, the, that, that's a, that's a really good, uh, important point. Uh, so I wasn't trying to set PRs on any of these and, um, it was, you know, it was a lot of the stuff that I do. It's, it's internal gut checks. Like it's a way to get me out there and, 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 and see what I made of. Like I'm, I'm, sick like that i think in a way um something something went loose up here but um yeah that's uh that's a good way to put it um and, and it, if if someone's not familiar with ultras like you slow down a lot in ultras anyways just because of the distances that you're going um i mean some of the elite guys are are incredible i'm in awe like their performance and the, the way they can do things um but yeah it's it's one of those things that like uh listen to your body know what you're capable of, know what your base level is. And then, um, for me, a lot of times too is, is I've been to, you know, I, I'd done comrades. I'd been to, you know, some of these longer distances before. And so, um, I'd been there before and, and where I was at that point, when I relaunched everything, um, a lot of it was getting my confidence back. And a lot of it was remembering the things I had done previously and remembering what it was like to be at those distances. And, um, that helped a lot too with the bounce back. And I don't know if I would have been able to do that had I not had, um, you know, some prior experience with ultra, some prior experience with some of those distances and knowing that I had been there before and I can go back. Um, and that was really reassuring, you know, uh, you know, throughout the whole project. Now, did you do any kind of faster workouts or speed sessions in your training to prep for all these ultras? I know it's not really specific to what you were training for, but I'm just curious. I did, I did some speed work um and then so my training changed quite a bit from my lead up to the australia one and then from australia through finland just because i had a lot less time so a lot of the a lot of the australia through finland ones were all re focused on recovery and just making sure your legs are good and making sure everything feels feels right and that you still have gas in the tank uh for the next ones and so a lot of like the speed work and like um, t the tempo stuff came early on uh, versus like from I would say from September to December rather than the uh, January to February window where I knocked out the four of them. Yeah, and I would say that was a, a good way to do things. If you have to run four ultra marathons in a two month period, you kind of want to put all your eggs in those baskets and. Mm -hmm take out the speed baskets. Don't put any eggs in those baskets. You don't, you don't want to spread your eggs too thin. Um, all right. So I've 
Another totally portable. talked about eggs too long here. Um, <laughs> now, what about strength work? Because I, I would say, I, I would say that you know, for this type of a goal, doing a bunch of ultra marathons in a relatively short period of time, the speed work almost not even necessary. You know, I would say in, in a perfect world, if, if you know we could kind of redo your training, you would do just enough to get some of the benefits of the speed work without any of the fatigue or injury risk that's normally associated with uh, running faster types of workouts because we would want you just to, you know, let's get a little bit more efficient. Let's, you know, work on running faster just for the range of motion benefits and muscle fiber recruitment and all that kind of nerdy stuff. Um, But the strength side of things, I would see, you know, I really look at this as a perfect complement to ultra marathon training because, you know, running especially running high volume amounts of mileage is very catabolic. It breaks down Mm -hmm. muscle tissue. You have to recover from it. uh, And if you're not counteracting that level of running with either strength work or enough recovery, you know, you risk getting injured just because, you know, you're kind of weakening yourself over time. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, you got to do some strength strength work. Uh, Did you do any strength work, Joel? So I, I actually like lifting more than I like running. So I'm kind of an interesting case, like head case from that perspective. But um, again, while I was traveling those like four to six weeks, uh, you know, not a lot of gyms in Antarctica. So like tough to do some, some strength work there. But um, pretty much while I was traveling, I was trying to get into a gym and doing something, not necessarily, um, you know, the heaviest weight in the world, but getting reps in, um, especially um, just activating, uh, those muscles in a different way than running all the time. Because after I got hurt, that was one of the things I, I, I really drove home to me. Um, you know, there's a, I've got a quote now, uh, there's no such thing as overtraining, just under recovery. Um, I think you've said that before maybe too. Uh, but it, it drove home to me one, um, how much, uh, mobility work is important. Um, for everything that you do, especially when you're doing the distances that I was doing. And then also just like uh, taxing your muscles in a different way than just running all the time. And and that was one of the things that I ran into was, this, uh, you know, the running workouts were they, were, they were great, they were important, and getting those distances under your belt were one thing. But um, one, uh, like it, it just didn't, um, when I was lifting and doing, uh, you know, just basic stuff with the legs like de- working on my deadlift form um, not even trying to you know set records or anything like that just doing the reps um, to do them uh, it helped me balance out a little bit more it helped um, you know me activate those muscles better when I was running um, you know and just working through um, you know those lower leg lifts in a way that was um, you know targeted and just just a little more focused because um and, and I, I would say that changed specifically from before the first race where I was just running. Um, um, I was doing a lot of running. I was doing all of my workouts. I had those, run, you know, those workouts sound perfect. And I think even after, after I did all my recovery um, and started it back up, I might have had less perfect workouts, but I was adding, I was adding some uh, – I was, I was maybe taking one or two run sessions out and adding a lifting session in and um, – I felt stronger. Um, I felt like I could handle um, some of the rigors a little bit more. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why I didn't run into any more injury issues than I did. Um, I had like a minor foot thing that came up one time, but, uh, you know, that lasted for two days. It took some time off of it and was totally fine after my fourth race. But, um, uh, but yeah, I, I'm a big proponent of strength work and mobility work and recovery work and, um, you know, I don't. I don't think I would have been able to do what I did if I if I didn't put the focus on recovery as much as uh, um, as much as I tried to. Yeah, I'll give you another quotable. If you don't make time for injury prevention, sooner or later you will have to make time for injury recovery, which is not Ooh. nearly as fun. No, it's not. So. Uh, you, yeah, I, no, you, I think you should have a book of these quotes, man. I know I should. I should just write a post of of all different quotables that people can people can share. Uh, no, I, I think what you did is a really smart way to go about an outlandish goal because 
you're absolutely right. The strength work that you were doing, yeah, you were doing deadlifts, which most runners don't do. It's kind of an advanced lift. A lot of runners don't understand how to do it. And I think a lot of us, when we get into the weight room, we think that we have to be putting up a ton of weight. That's what it's there for. You know, let's lift all the weight. When in fact, you know, you, you used a really important word here, activating. You were activating muscles that you don't really use while you're running. And especially for runners who aren't doing any speed work, you know, a, a muscle that they're not using very much, um, two of them, the hips and the glutes. When you're mm-hmm. running slow, you know, you're not really, you know, exhibiting a powerful stride that requires really strong glute and hip contraction. But those are the two most important muscles for running, you know? So when it comes to running fast, running good races, or not fatiguing at the end of a 50-mile race, you know, you want strong hips and glutes. And if you're not getting that at all through your running, through faster workout sessions, you have to get it in the gym. You absolutely have to do it. And, uh, you know, just doing some some lighter lifts, but going through the motions, getting in your reps is a really nice way to... Uh, at the same time, get in some injury prevention work, activate those underused muscles, while at the same time, prioritizing your running. You know, you'd, you didn't have the capacity to do three hard sessions in the gym every day. You, you would have you ended up injured or you would have ended up needing to scale back your running training to make room for that lifting. And that wouldn't have been a, a smart idea because you're training for a bunch of uh, for a bunch of longer ultra marathon distance races. Um, let's talk about mobility. Now I know you're into mobility. You have an app on the app store called move. Well, uh, which, which I've downloaded and, and I really like some really great mobility routines. Uh, what does a typical mobility session look like for you? So if I'm doing, um, if I'm doing leg work, let's just say I'm doing leg work cause move. Well's got stuff for, it's got stuff for runners, got stuff for, um, lifters, got stuff for people who are sitting at their desk all day and just, um, just hanging out. So, uh, the way we basically try to set it up is okay. If, uh, for me, essentially I, I try to work my way, uh, down my leg. And so I'll start with, um, I'll start with like hip flexor, um, for 30 seconds to a minute each side, uh, work my way down my quad. Um, sometimes work around, uh, uh, my kneecap and then, and then down through, um, Basically, just take it as we go. And so it's probably like a 10-minute session with four different points, four to five different points between your hip flexors, your quad, your hamstring, um, your calf, depending on you need it, and then um, your feet as well. So if you've got like a tennis ball or a lacrosse ball that you can use and throw down there and just like activate um, the muscles down there. And typically, uh, for me, uh, the places that I have the most issue are one – my ankle, which I injured, you know, way back in 2014 at this point. And so I would do different, um, just physical therapy, uh, activations around. So, um, you know, while you're, um, you know, rolling out a foam roller, doing stretches with your foot pointing in different directions and, and making sure you're really getting in and around that. And the other place I have is always on, it's always on my hip flexors. And so, um, a lot of times I'll do a foam roller there, but a lot of times I'll also just get a lacrosse ball and, um, and sometimes when I'm, uh, uh, you know, if I, it's, it's really struggling, um, I'll just like lay down on the stomach and turn on the TV or watch something and, and just let it really dig in there and let, um, uh, really try to open it up. Um, I'll throw on a couch stretch in there as well. Um, just to really kind of open yourself up and, and really, um, you know, make, force yourself to open up my hips. Cause I'm, I, you know, I'm, you know, we run online businesses. I'm sitting at my computer all the time. I'm always crunched over like this. And uh, anything I can do to open myself back up is, um, you know, is always always really needed, especially when I'm running uh, at that type of volume. And so um, I would do that. I would do it a lot of times um, in airports when I'm, you know, hanging out in between flights because you're going to be on a 12-hour flight, you know, from, you know, Australia to you know, South America and you get off those flights and you just feel like you're all crunched up. And so, um, you know, I tend to focus, uh, specifically on my hip flexors areas and I'll, I'll, I'll spend probably an inordinate amount of time around there because I know that's a problem area for me. And then, um, you know, around my ankle as well. Um, a lot of the movable routines, um, are designed to be, um, a little bit more generic. Like if you're just going to do an, uh, a lower body, 
um, you know, lift session or if you're going to do a run session, like here's how you open up and, and get ready for that. Um, but you can be really, really custom depending on, you know, what specific areas you either have a problem with or, you know, what you're, what you'd really like to work on and, and, and improve. Yeah. Mo- uh, mobility is super important. And I think, uh, if there's any runners out there who have desk jobs where they're hunched over a computer, it becomes even more important. Uh, and, and one thing you mentioned that I just want to underscore is, uh, two things actually first is you do both of your legs in 10 minutes. You're not spending 10 minutes on every muscle throughout both of your legs, which would turn it into like a 70, 90 minute yeah. ordeal. It's, uh, it's a whole nother workout. Like, <laughs> right. And normal people don't have time for that. Nobody has yeah. time for that. Uh, and, and I think that's an important point to make is that you don't have to spend all this extra time doing mobility work, whether that's massage, whether, whether it's, you know, dynamic flexibility exercises, a little bit uh, will do you a lot of good. I like to, you know, it's like, like barefoot running. It's like Elmer's glue, a dab will do you. And you know, you'll get a lot of benefit from that. Uh, and then the other thing was that you focused on your feet. Uh, I think a lot of runners ignore their feet where to me, that's kind of insane. Your feet, uh, these are your first contact points with you on the ground. They get a lot of abuse. Uh, they are responsible for, you know, holding up all of your, your body weight and, the feet are are often ignored. So if we can spend a little bit more time making sure that our foot musculature is supple, we're not carrying any trigger points, anything like that. Uh, I know I've mentioned this before, but I have a really hard massage ball that I keep under my desk at all times. Mm -hmm. So if I'm working, I can just get my foot under there and roll out a uh, sore area, uh, any kind of trigger point that I might have. And it's such a simple way to get in some extra mobility work when you know you're just sitting here you're working you're typing you're on a podcast you know something like that and i can make sure that my feet are being taken care of uh i think it's such a great practical way to get in some extra mobility when normally you're just sitting around at your desk yeah uh, lacrosse ball is two dollars and uh it's it once you start doing it i uh, i don't remember where you know I was talking to, I think, a mobility coach, and he was just, you know, threw it out there a couple of years back. And once I started doing, it, I was like, "Why have I not done this before?" It's like a free foot massage, uh, you know, throughout your day, and it's, and, and it activate like once you, it's it, it's one of those things. Once you activate those muscles, you didn't realize you were abusing them so much. Like they're just kind of like you're not paying attention to them, so nothing, you know, you don't really notice how much, uh, uh, how much tension is caught up there. So. Um, the other thing that you mentioned was uh, massage therapy, and uh, that's one of the things that I got into on a semi-regular basis after some of these long runs. That um, literally, it's you know, it's 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 more expensive, but it's some of the best money I've ever spent, uh, and I have no regrets about it because uh, if you get a massage therapist who really knows what they're doing, um, you know, you do a couple sessions after a, a long run, and it can be it can be really, really incredible what they can, what they can, you know, pull out of you just by, uh, you know, finding the right spots and, and, and being really good with their hands. So, um, that was something that, you know, before I got into ultra running, I didn't really know much about. I thought it was weird. You go into a room and you get naked and, you know, someone touches you. And, uh, now I'm like, that's, that's some of the best money I've ever spent. And, uh, um, I don't, yeah, I, 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 I didn't do that almost ever before I got into ultra. So, um, that's been that's been really helpful tool as well. Right, uh, Ian Sharman, who is a multiple winner of the Leadville uh, Trail 100, uh, I had him on the podcast. We talked about his recent downhill marathon PR, and uh, he's big on massage too. Uh, and he's someone who's, you know, oh, he I think he, he just ran Western States, uh, which is a brutal hundred mile race, uh, and massage is a very key component to his recovery strategy. Uh, Joel, this was amazing. Uh, you know, I think, you know, life is either a daring adventure or nothing. And you embody that you make me feel like I'm not doing enough big things in the world. Uh, and I think everyone needs someone like that in their life to help push them forward and upward. So thanks so much for sharing your story. Uh, I'm really excited for round two. We're going to do a second podcast, talk a little bit more about, um, the lessons learned about this project, the impact that it's had more specifically. Uh, and we're going to touch on some other things. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, until then, I know people are going to want to support this project and help build yet another school. Where can we learn more about the 777 project and participate and more about you and your work? 
Yeah, so you can pretty much find everything at impossiblehq.com. Um, 777 is at impossiblehq.com slash 777. And um, yeah, uh, you can see the updates. Uh, I've got video updates of each race, so you can see like what each race looked like, all the photos. Um, you can see the progress towards the schools. And then um, as we build the schools, they're going to be uh, updated there as well. So, um, And if uh, they want to uh, do some more mobility work, you can check out movewellapp.com. And um, that's got a bunch of free routines to help you do uh, more mobility in 10 minutes or less. So um, do that and become a better runner. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And move well is coach Jason approved. Uh, I think it's a wonderful app and, and I have it myself. All right, Joel, you're the man. Keep changing the world. All right. Thanks, man. I hope you enjoyed Joel and I talking about the 777 project, not just the technical aspects of preparation and training and logistics, but the real impact he's having in the world. And I hope too, that you'll consider supporting that mission. Just go to impossiblehq.com backslash 777 to learn more about Pencils of Promise, the project itself, and how you can get involved. And a big thanks to today's podcast sponsor as well, Health IQ, a special type of insurance company that helps health-conscious people like us runners get lower life insurance rates. Now, historically, runners have been penalized for things like family history and other attributes, but not rewarded for their healthy lifestyles. Health IQ changes that. They've gathered science and data to convince insurance companies that health-conscious folks like runners deserve lower rates. And since research has shown avid runners have a 41% lower risk of heart disease and up to a 35% lower risk of early death, they've been successful. Over the last three years, they've helped tens of thousands of athletes secure billions of dollars of coverage. Want to see if you qualify? Go to healthiq.com slash strengthrunning to see how much money running can save you on life insurance. Thank you for listening to the Strength Running Podcast. And until next time, I hope running brings you a little more adventure in your life.